Welcome to Conversations. I'm your host, Doug Dewan, and joining me this segment is Daniel Hatcher, professor of law at the University of Baltimore's Civil Advocacy Clinic and author of Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. Join us as we look at issues that affect us here at home in our community and across the nation. Today, we're going to talk about our justice system. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah. Can you just, uh, let's just start from the top then. Uh, can you walk us through when you say commodifying, what do you mean? How does our justice system benefit from increased traffic? Sure. Well, unfortunately, many, almost countless ways, right? It's almost as if our, our justice systems are becoming a factory assembly line, um, but almost in reverse, right? You know, more of a disassembly line where already struggling Children and adults are targeted and deconstructed for every possible penny. So I uh, uncover in the book multiple contractual revenue mechanisms, both from our juvenile courts, family courts, criminal courts, prosecutor's office, probation departments, policing agencies, detention facilities, residential treatment centers, right, are all contractually commodifying children and the poor. And it's it's such a striking and what I argue unconstitutional shift and mission, right, from what's supposed to be the intended mission of of serving that ideal of equal and partial justice, instead shifting to becoming more like a business and focusing on maximizing revenue. Yeah. And I think we've, uh, for the most part, I think we're all somewhat at least surface level familiar with the idea of for-profit prison. But I don't think uh, many of us consider the idea of juvenile courts being part of that system. So let's talk about the youth. Let's talk about juvenile courts. What threats, behaviors, ethical dilemmas are we facing there? Sure. Well, multiple. One of the striking examples I I, uh, discuss in the book um, is out of Ohio, but that's an example of multiple state juvenile court systems are using the same contractual schemes. So in Ohio, the juvenile courts are actually generating revenue when they remove children from their homes. Um, And the way they do it is um, even further concerning, right? They, They actually contract to become the local foster care placing agencies. So you have the juvenile courts contracting to take on an executive branch agency function. And, you know, this goes back to our our revolutionary war, right? The whole reason um, that we had the war was to escape tyranny. And our founders and creating the structure of government here um, was all based on the principle of separation of powers between the branches and the crucial importance of our independent judiciary. But in this Ohio example, you have the Ohio Juvenile Courts actually contracting to become part of the executive branch agency. Um, and then, you know, so you have the juvenile courts, they, they sort of put on their court hat and uh, they may adjudicate children as delinquent. Um, and then they put on their foster care agency placing hat and decide they're going to remove the child, place the child in various facilities. Right. And then the court puts its court hat back on again rules on itself, right, and acting as the agency. And if it rules on itself favorably, it can generate more federal foster care revenue through that whole structure. And it's not just that they're generating revenue from the services, right, so through the direct services, but they're generating even more money through administrative cost claiming. They're literally using children 
to fund the overhead of the juvenile court structure. And I believe I saw something that said to even facilitate this more, the prosecutors are incentivized as well. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, so, and 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 when we go across the country, multiple prosecutors have have similar interagency contracts, um, both for um, uh, obtaining foster care revenue, um, also child support, federal 4D revenue, and I can talk about that a little more, and also generating sometimes um, millions of fines and fees. The, the prosecutors are often part of this um, of this um, pursuit of fines and fees against the poor. But if you consider just the foster care revenue, I've seen some states where prosecutors are actually more incentivized to be able to generate more revenue um, based upon the number of poor children removed from their homes, right? And the contracts themselves, there are these funding equations and the funding equations use a percentage, sometimes even called the penetration rate, right? And what the penetration rate is, is the percentage of poor kids who are removed from their home and placed in out-of-home care compared to non-poor kids. So the greater percentage of poor kids that the prosecutors help remove from their homes, the more money that the prosecutors can then claim by using that higher percentage um, rate. Um, and then in other states, I've also seen examples where they can generate a higher um, revenue if they're moving towards termination of parental rights. Um, in child support proceedings, they'll also generate more revenue if they're pursuing child support that isn't actually even owed to the children, um, but has been assigned to repay the costs of, again, foster care, right? Or um, mm. sheet of welfare aid. So you could actually have the same child um, and his um, parent pull through multiple of these revenue schemes. You could have the courts generating revenue through child removal. Um, you could have the prosecutors also generating revenue um, by acting as a prosecutor in, in, in those proceedings. And then you could have both the courts and the prosecutor generating more money by pursuing the parent for child support to repay the cost of foster care that the courts and the prosecutor just cost, right? So it's it's you're you're using children of the poor rather than serving them. Yeah, and then when the when the system is done with you, you enter probation in all likelihood. How does probation work to help service with this injustice inc that you speak of? Right. Well, probation is, is a huge part, and and it's probation is often viewed potentially as one of the potential ways to help improve mass incarceration in terms of criminal justice reform. But we're unfortunately seeing stark examples across the country where probation has increasingly become part of the problem, part part of the the business. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, if you look at Los Angeles, that has one of the biggest probation departments in the country. Right. And, and it's like a, a large factory business. And um, in some of these jurisdictions, the probation departments, um, again, can, can pull down, generate more federal foster care revenue, the more children that they cause to be removed from their homes. Um, and it's they're not just also generating revenue through the child removals. They're also processing children through a system where they will label them as foster care candidates, right? And initially, you know, it can be a benefit, right? You know, if you have a struggling family who needs assistance to prevent the need for breaking up the family, getting needed assistance to that family is, is crucial. But the incentives built into this foster candidate structure that probation departments are using, right? They're incentivized to label the child and then they're incentivized to 
um, find that the child is not doing well, right? Because if the child is doing better, right, and they no longer need the services and the probation department can no longer keep the money, keep the money flowing. Um, and I've seen trainings um, to that effect and, and multiple jurisdictions, right? You know, all about, again, generating revenue from the children, right? Instead of using crucial aid to help the children, they've totally shifted from their mission of service, right? To a focus on using the vulnerable populations to serve themselves. Mm. Okay. So before it gets to the point of you're in court, you're in uh, child protective services, any of these things, let's talk about the boots on the ground, the police uh, and the sheriffs, how are they being incentivized um, in carrying out arrests, maybe, I mean, maybe acting as bounty hunters, uh, generating revenue, talking about just simple things like evictions and shutoffs. Uh, how does that work? Right. M multiple ways. So the policing agencies, what could be sheriff's departments, could be uh, the police, it could be in some jurisdictions, I call them um, constables, right, or city marshals. Um, so the um, police and sheriffs may also have um, for these interagency contracts to profit from um, foster care proceedings and child support proceedings. Um, I've seen some jurisdictions where um, sheriff's office, for example, are incentivizing their contracts where literally the more arrests that they carry out in child support proceedings or executing warrants, right, they'll even split the, the money with the courts. So if the courts issue more warrants for arrests in these proceedings, um, against low-income families, um, and then the sheriffs carry out the arrests, the sheriffs get half the money and the courts get the other half. Um, so again, all all focused on revenue, right, rather than service. And just to pause there for a second, like so, and I talk about some more of the policing examples, this is such a clear violation of constitutional due process impartiality, right? All of our justice officials are supposed to be impartial in carrying out their ethical obligations in the pursuit of justice, right? The courts, prosecutors, probation officers, policing officers as well. So they're only supposed to be incentivized by that mission of justice. If they're instead incentivized by money, right, that's a violation of, of impartiality and, and it um, undercuts the intended structure of, of our system of government and it also causes severe harm to the individuals impacted. But that's just one of the examples, right? Like, so the police and the, and the sheriffs, um, city marshals, New York has um, what are called city marshals. Um, and even though they're called city marshals, they're actually not city employees. They're literally like hired guns, right? You know, that are, and they've existed for about that long since, since colonial times um, in New York. And they'll help pursue court-ordered um, judgments on, on the collections, the carry out evictions, utility turnoffs, um, seizing vehicles, seizing property, you name it. And they actually don't even get paid a salary. Their, their, their sole funding comes from getting a cut, getting fees and percentages of everything they do, right? So that's the bounty hunter idea. Literally, that's, that's what they're doing. And, and, the, and the, according to the city's own data, that the, the average um, net, right, after costs, after overhead um, income that, that a, an average city marshal is pulling down is over $420,000, right? You know, so j j literally making profit off of causing harm, inflicting harm on low-income individuals. Sheriffs across the country are getting 
um, a commission, some call it a poundage, right? Um, a, a direct contingency fee. Uh, again, the more um, collections they pursue on court order judgments, right? The more um, uh, property they seize, the more sheriff sales that they carry out, right? And sheriff sales is, is an institution um, of, of incredibly unfortunate history that dates back to sheriff sales when they're literally used to sell off enslaved individuals on the courthouse steps. The sheriffs would do this in order to, to generate revenue to make money to pay off court-ordered um, judgments. So it's just one thing after another. After another, you know, in some states, you know, in Alabama, they've, the sheriffs have even generated revenue from food intended for the, the, the current individuals who are incarcerated in the facilities that the sheriffs hold. And that incentive is so perverse when you think about it, is like they get a certain amount of food money, right? They're, they're instead of, uh, uh, supposed to be using to help actually feed people, right, who are incarcerated there. But if they do it as cheaply as possible, the sheriffs themselves would pocket the rest. Um, and they, they reduce that practice some in Alabama, but uh, or according to the um, the legislation that went through, the sheriff's offices are still able to take 25%, right? So literally profiting off of food. Um, and, you know, they'll generate even more money. We haven't even talked about, again, their um, interaction with fines and fees pursuits um, for civil forfeiture uh, that, that's happening around the country where they'll literally seize almost any kind of property, right, without even filing criminal charges, um, just to assert that there's been some um, maybe grounds for an investigation of a crime, right, and then they'll file a claim not against the individual, but against the property, take the property, sell it off, and then use that as revenue for the office. Yeah. It's, it's running like a business, right? And they're using us as, as the commodities. And I, I okay, I want to ask the wrong question. And the wrong question is how did we get here? But the 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 question I think I should be asking is what if anything should we be doing to A, protect ourselves from the system and to help make changes to it? Right. Well, well, big questions. Both and, and important questions. I mean, how, how we got here is um, that's a layered response. You know, if we look back at our history, um, you know, the, the the framing of our constitutional democracy, right, was built upon um, a very good structure, but that was flawed from the outset, right? You know, the institution of slavery was built into um, the system and the, and the original commodification that came along with that. As you go through history, many of the practices that started back at that time, including from um, the era of the Black Codes and, and Jim Crow laws, um, are largely continuing today in, in some of these commodification schemes, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's historical, but more recently where I've seen the, the, the growth has largely been because the institutions of government, these justice institutions, instead of solely being focused on justice, they're increasingly, again, following this mindset of running like a business, right? And that means they, they want to focus on efficiency and revenue and find the revenue wherever they can get it, right? Literally where they're using the vulnerable populations that they're supposed to serve, right? You know, like in, in, my, in my last book, I wrote a book called The Poverty Industry. And in that book, I talked about examples where Human service agencies are unfortunately doing the same thing. Um, one of the um, examples that I wrote about 
um, actually came a, a Supreme Court case that went up um, called Keffler came out of Washington State, where the foster care agencies themselves are literally targeting children who are disabled or, or have deceased parents and taking their money, taking their survivor benefits and disability benefits. Right. So I, 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 I've uncovered all these striking, I would argue, um, illegal, um, unethical examples in which agencies that exist to serve also seek to exist. Right. And they've shifted to this point where they're using their beneficiaries to serve themselves. Um, I mean, we can shift towards solutions. Um, again, like, I mean, so much of this is, is complex. And, and how do we start stopping and fixing these practices? But the themes are, are, are actually really simple. Um, I, I think it comes down to mission and ethics. Right. You know, like it's so crucial. We have to have that that core true mission in our justice systems of the pursuit of equal and impartial justice. Right? We should all be able to agree on that. The mission isn't to maximize a profit, right? That's simply not the goal of our justice institutions. Um, and the ethics come into play because our judges, our, our attorneys involved in the system, the prosecutors, right? Probation officers, policing officers, right? Um, justice officials operating detention facilities and the like, um, they have ethical obligations to pursue that intended mission, mm-hmm. right? So, so um, the theme is simple. Um, you know, when you start breaking down solutions, um, you really you're looking at the individual county system um, and um, the the revenue mechanism that we're discussing. Um, um, but I very much think solutions are possible. It can come with simple agency changes if they actually act and correct their own wrongs, which, you know, I'm, I'm still, um, despite all I've seen with my representation of low-income individuals, I've represented children and the poor and variety of poverty issues for over 25 years. Um, and I've been writing and investigating and litigating these systemic challenges um, for that long, but I still believe in the ideals of justice, right? And that those of us in the justice system can be true to our ethical obligations to adhere to those missions. But when it's not happening, then we need more litigation, right? You know, across the country. And we've seen some good examples of that. um, And we need more to challenge unconstitutional practice. You can have also county level legislative fixes, you know, through ordinances. Um, Again, the agencies themselves can issue new guidance and and simply stop engaging in the harmful practices in, in many instances. Um, you can have state level um, litigation as well. And, and then I think we need more um, action from the Department, U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division and in investigating um, various instances of these violations. Well, but, I yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I was going to pause. Well, I was just going to say I, I really appreciate this. Um, I think. The idea of expecting them to change on their own, as you kind of suggest, that that to me feels uh, like a little bit hopeless. Um, is there anything someone like me could do uh, to try to help kind of push towards a change? Like just a random everyday Joe, what could I do? If right. anything? It's a gr- that's a great question. And I agree. Like, I, I do think like we need to we can't give up by our ideals. Right. You know, because justice is an ideal. We have to keep striving for that ideal. But we also need to be we need to live in the world. Right. And be aware mm-hmm. that these violations are happening to do what we can to right the wrongs when we 
and counter them, right? Both internally and externally. So what, what you could do is, is, is if you, um, you know, especially if you know someone who's impacted um, by an example, right? Or if you um, are interested in one of the particular issues, and I'll, I'll use that as an example, the um, issue of foster children's resources that agencies have been taking for them, right? This is uh, an issue that um, has um, been moving in the right direction over the past couple of years after um, my past research and working with multiple advocates on, on these issues. We first um, were able to get legislation through in Maryland um, to prevent at least part of the practice, right? So it was definitely a move in the right direction. Um, and that bill was initially sponsored by um, Jamie Raskin. He was a um, state senator, um, now a member of Congress. Um, but the and getting that legislation through, um, which was a multiple year process, right? It's a long fight, you know, to keep moving in the right direction. Um, the the strongest voices, the most impactful voices, came from individuals not who were the lawyers and the talking heads and the scholars and all that, but were the people impacted by the issues. Former foster youth, right, stood up and told their own stories about this, right, in terms of how it was happening. And their stories um, helped to influence the state lawmakers to change things for, for the better. Um, and, I, and I think also, um, you know, what you can do as an example, like is reaching out to your own elected officials, you know, both at the county and state level, also reaching out to members of the press, right? You know, what you're doing, you know, by having a, a, a news discussion of this is so crucial. You know, change starts with awareness. Right. Other individuals who aren't, you know, don't have their own news um, platform can reach out to members of the press and journalists to help try to encourage them to take interest. Right. Because journalists, uh, you know, telling the story um, of these um, uh, harmful revenue schemes, right, can help to change them. And, and it's already been doing that in, in multiple examples. Well, I'm glad to help in any way that I can. Um, now, as long as we're on the topic, how can we help you? Uh, tell me about the book. How can people get a hold of it and learn more about this? Great. So, so the book is, again, called Injustice, Inc., um, How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. Um, it's out. It'll be in, um, should be available in local bookstores and all the online um, uh, locations. You can get it from the University of California Press directly um and it's uh releases actually tomorrow um so so out very soon and i think you know the the book if anybody's interested if you have questions right or if you have potential contacts right and you would like to start a conversation in your community about how to use um the research to spur change reach out to me um my email is dhatcher at ubalts ubalt.edu. Um, and it's also available on, I've got a, um, a website um, with the University of Baltimore where you can look up my name and the, the email and, and contact information is there. Um, reach out to me and, and let's start those conversations, right? Because again, I, I think, you know, individuals, um, the change starts with you. And, and I very much, you know, I, I refuse to give up on my ideals that one person can make a difference, right? You know, we, we, we have to keep 
um, tilting at windmills, so to speak. Um, to <laughs> well, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the time you've taken to have the conversation with me. Uh, Professor Daniel Hatcher, thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation this morning. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, and thank you for listening. Conversations is a public affairs program of this station.